morning. Just overwhelmed by God's goodness to us as a people and as a church right now. He's really good. Some of the most epic victories in history have been possible because people who, of people who understood their calling and embraced their role in the mission. And nowhere is that better exemplified than in the history of the American space program. Hidden Figures is a book by Margot Shetterly. It's also a, a successful movie now that tells the incredible true story of the black female mathematicians at NASA whose work helped fuel some of America's greatest achievements in space. These human computers, as they were called, were mathematical geniuses who were instrumental in the early scientific breakthroughs of space flight. Katherine Johnson was born in 1918 in the little town of White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. Johnson was fascinated by numbers from an early age, and by the time she was 10 years old, she was already a high school freshman, which at that time was truly an amazing feat in an era when school for African Americans usually ended at eighth grade. In 1953, after years as a teacher and later as a stay-at-home mom, she began her career as a NASA mathematician and aerospace technologist. And over the next 33 years, Johnson's computations would influence every major space program from the Mercury launches to the space shuttle program. Johnson was known as an outstanding technical leader, and she's especially known for her calculations on some of the most famous missions, including uh, the 1961 trajectory for Alan Shepard's flight as the first American in space. And then a year later, confirming the, the electronic computations for John Glenn's first orbit around the Earth. And then several years later, uh, very important trajectories and computations for the Apollo missions to the moon. She's also known for authoring 26 very influential research papers for NASA. In her later career at NASA, Johnson worked as a mentor and encouraged students to pursue careers in science and technology fields. Katherine Johnson and the other women computers were behind the victories and the glory that our astronauts received in the early days of the space program. And their lives teach us that we all have a common mission that is more important than we are. And when we understand that, it doesn't matter who gets the credit. In an age where everyone is outraged and offended, this is a wonderful reminder on how we can then begin the healing process that we all so desperately need right now. We're on the tail end of one of the most bitter and divisive elections in modern history. And I think we can agree that politics has become one of the most destructive forces in our lives. Families have been divided. Lifelong friendships have been destroyed and churches have been strained to the breaking point. And some of the hardest things to watch on social media is between fellow new lifers on both sides. And Satan has set a trap for the church that we have fallen into, the trap of gaining worldly power. It's a lie, and it's a distraction that has eternal consequences, and the lie goes something like this. If we can just get our candidate in office, if we can just get the right 
policies, if we can just get our judges, then, then we can start being the church. Then we can get back to loving our neighbors and loving our enemies and talking to our friends and coworkers about Jesus. And sometimes it seems like for much of the church, the idea of saving America has become more important than saving souls. Listen, we all want to be part of a cause, a story that is greater than ourselves. And that's what our presidential candidates were offering. Whether it's Donald Trump's theme of make America great again or Joe Biden's theme of build back better, people were passionate and they were motivated because we all want to help make the world become the, 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 the way that we envision it. We want to make it become a reality. And here's the most amazing thing about the power of story is that we, as followers of Jesus Christ, have the most amazing story to tell. That every person is made in the image of God and they have incredible value and worth and that the God of the universe loves them and he's made a way for them to be in relationship with him. And they can experience forgiveness of sin, freedom from fear, deliverance from oppression, the casting off of shame. What a story. What a message. Where do we go from here? How do we heal? Who do we turn to? We've already heard it today. Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is greater than any candidate. Jesus is greater than any leader. Jesus is greater than any nation. Jesus is sovereign. He rules and reigns. Jesus is king of kings and lords of lords. It's always been about Jesus, and it's always going to be about Jesus and his kingdom. And as a citizen of God's kingdom... We all have the privilege of being ambassadors of Jesus Christ to a lost and broken world. And if we're going to be effective ambassadors for Jesus, we can't afford to be divided. Colossians 3.15 says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Right now, God is calling us to turn away from the distractions. Turn away from the idols. Turn away from all rivals. And he's calling us back to our first love. To make Jesus great again. And revival, as much as we want it, isn't going to start out there until it starts in here. And my goal for this message is very simple. That we would remember that we are a family. And that we would reunify around Jesus over everything else. Our text today is John chapter 3, but before we start, let's, as always, let's review some of the context. 
One of the unique features of John's gospel is that it's centered around powerful encounters with a a variety of people and contexts that reveal what Jesus came to do and who he is. And John is not just interested in giving you information about Jesus. Like many characters in his gospel account, he wants us to encounter Jesus for ourselves in an authentic, life-changing way. Today, I want to reintroduce someone who knew Jesus intimately and can serve as a trusted guide on how to make Jesus great again in our own lives. John the Baptist is one of the most well-known and interesting people from biblical history, but there's some important details uh, from his life that can give us some great context for this morning's message. John Baptist has quite the backstory. He was actually a distant relative of Jesus. Luke mentions that Elizabeth and Mary are related. John the Baptist is also the first to recognize Jesus as Lord. Uh, In Luke 144, when Mary comes to visit Elizabeth during their pregnancies, the text says what uh, Elizabeth says, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. John the Baptist was also the last prophet in the Bible who foretold the coming of the Messiah. And this is what Jesus himself has to say about John the Baptist when he was imprisoned. In Matthew eleven seven, he says, it says, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, with that background in mind, let's turn to our text today. It's John chapter 3, starting in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, Look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Now, this passage here, verses 22 to 26, set the stage for our encounter with John the Baptist. And the scene picks up with Jesus and and his disciples out in the country, outside Jerusalem, baptizing the people who came to them. Now, one of the things that jumped out at me from this passage is there, there is a brief period here Um, when Jesus and John the Baptist work side by side. Now, there's a brief mention here in verse 25 uh, about a discussion, uh, an argument over purification rituals. And from there, John's disciples come to him and tell him, hey, John, you're losing your followers. They're all turning away from you, and they're beginning to go across the river. They're beginning to follow Jesus. Now, you can detect just a hint of maybe resentment in their conversation with John. And it seems like Uh, John's disciples are are, are offended on his behalf. 
And picking up an offense on someone else's behalf is not uncommon. I did it just last week. We're all guilty of this, and it usually isn't helpful. We take matters into our own hands, and it usually doesn't go well because we're acting on emotion in the moment instead of listening to the Holy Spirit. Now, John the Baptist here could easily have taken offense. After all I've done for you, I've pointed the way, I've given my life for you, and this is how you treat me. But notice John's response to his disciples is totally counterintuitive. He doesn't take the bait. And he has a choice to make, and it's the choice that we all face when our ego and our pride is on the line. Instead, John the Baptist refuses to be offended. And here we come to our first lesson on John, from John the Baptist on how to make Jesus great again. It's Number one, be grateful. John 3, verse 27, John answered to them, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. Instead of defending his position with a sense of entitlement, a sense of his rights, he responds with gratitude. Now, this is a powerful teaching moment for John's disciples. John understands there's absolutely nothing on this earth that he has, absolutely nothing that he didn't receive from God. Now, and gratitude is an important theme throughout the Bible. Uh, and John's in good biblical company. Here are a couple of examples. Moses warned the Israelites about the dangers of prosperity, Deuteronomy 8, where he says, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to get wealth. In the New Testament, James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. What a great reminder for this entitled age that we live in. Sometimes we need God's help in seeing His goodness in our own lives. It's almost holidays uh, season here, and it's coming up really fast. And I've, I've mentioned this before. One of our Christmas traditions is to, to watch the classic movie, it, It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, and I was talking to, to Marcy this week. It was She was helping me prepare, and she, she's like, I've never seen it. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, you've never seen It's a Wonderful Life. I almost had the same kind of reaction Pastor Tim does when he finds out you haven't read Mere Christianity. But it's a great movie, and for me, it's one of the movies that, that, that speaks something new to me every year. And the movie tells the story, just a quick summary, of, of George Bailey. He uh, lives in a small town, upstate New York. He, he sacrificed his education and his dreams of adventure in order to, to stay home and keep the family business from going under. And, and over the years, he sees his family members, he sees friends become super, super successful. And over time, George grows uh, more angry and more bitter at how his life turns out. And in an important scene, I won't give away the, the total plot, but there, there's a the threat of scandal and a threat of ruin to him and his family on Christmas Eve. And he comes home and he, and he, he just explodes and he says to his wife, you call this a happy family? Why do we have to have all these kids? Anyway, he runs off and he gets to the point where he's so low, he feels like that his life is worth more when he, he, he's worth more dead than alive. And, and, and he, he, he wishes, he says out loud, he goes, I wish I'd never been born. And his 
God sends a guardian angel, and the, the angel says to him, he says, okay, you've got your wish. And then he shows George Bailey what life would have been like if he had not been born. Lives that, would have, that wouldn't have been saved, towns that would have been very different. And he sees how really what a wonderful life he had. God uses that to change his perspective from one of bitterness to one of gratefulness. Instead of ending his life, the movie closes with George Bailey on his knees crying out to God and saying, God, please let me live. And every year when I see that movie, my heart is pricked to see that I have a wonderful life. And it's funny. I know it's coming every year when I watch it, right? I know it's coming, and I can't, I can't stop being affected by it. Maybe you're like me. Sometimes we just need a gentle reminder about important things. As I look at my life, I see so many things that I have to be grateful for. My health, my wife, my boys, great friends, great New Life Church. I get to serve here at New Life Church. And if I'm honest, when I it's when I take things for granted, when I have a sense that I'm owed something, that's when my attitude not just affects not just me, but everyone around me. Michael Hyatt wrote an article that had a big impact on me years ago, and his point was that a small shift in your vocabulary can have a major attitude on our attitude and on those around us. He says, I have to is the language of duty. It sounds pessimistic. It can make you sound like a victim. But if you change it to, I get to, it's the language of privilege. It's, it's, it's relishing the opportunity of the gift that we've been given. And here, here's a couple examples. I don't have to go to church. I get to go to church. As Pastor Tim said, we, we get to go to church where we are free. And yeah, we have to wear masks and all that, but we get to come to church. How about this? I, I don't have to go to work today. I get to go to work today. Yeah, my job's hard, and, 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 and I know some of you had very difficult, demanding jobs. You get to go to work. What a privilege it is to have a job, to have income, to be able to provide for your family. And I think you get the point. Every aspect of our lives could be an example. So take a moment. Take a moment to think about your own life over the last couple of weeks. How many activities at work or with your spouse or with your children did you say, I have to? How many times with, when you were doing laundry did you say, I have to? Or, or maybe you're a student, maybe you're a young, young person here today. How many times when you did your homework did you say, I have to? I challenge you this week to change one word in your vocabulary from have to to get to. And I believe if you try it, you'll find that it makes a significant impact, just a big difference on you and everyone around you. And as we've learned over the years at New Life, gratefulness makes room for God to fill. The overflow of a grateful heart is a grateful attitude with grateful words, and it's something that changes the atmosphere around you. Gratitude makes Jesus great again. And one of the results of a grateful attitude is joy. Our next lesson from John the Baptist is to be joyful. John 3, verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hear him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. 
Now, the image of the Messiah as the bridegroom has some Old Testament references that John's audience would have easily understood. Here's one example from Isaiah chapter 62, verse 4. It says, the Lord speaking, you shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. John the Baptist tells this, this story, this, this parable, this analogy, using a very common experience of a wedding to explain the relationship of the bridegroom and the best man and to explain his role in preparing the way for Jesus. Uh, to gain a little more insight uh, for this message, I, I, done, did, I did a little bit of research on ancient Jewish weddings, and I found out they're much more intricate and very different than more detailed than our modern American weddings. In fact, there are multiple steps in the marriage process, uh, each having a very important meaning, but there's two main ones that I want to highlight. First is the betrothal and then the marriage ceremony. Now, the betrothal starts off with a public declaration of the couple's love that, begins, that then begins a time in which the couple, uh, they, they prepare. They set themselves apart uh, to, to enter the covenant of marriage. The betrothal period could last up to a year. And during the betrothal period, the groom's responsibility was to prepare and focus on, on the new dwelling for his bride and his family. The period of betrothal was a time of great anticipation, as you can imagine, as the bride waited for her betrothed. And the final process in the, in the wedding is, 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 is the idea, it, it's called nasun. It, it's the Hebrew word for to carry. And it's a beautiful picture of, of the bride that would be waiting for her groom to come, to carry her off to her new home. And since the time of arrival was a, a surprise, the bride and the bridal party were always to be ready. And it was customary for one of the groom's party to go ahead of the bridegroom, leading the way to the bride's house and shout, Behold, the bridegroom comes! John is using this analogy to explain that his position, while very, very important, has always been secondary. He's saying to his disciples, Listen, you've been with me from the beginning, and my mission was to prepare the way, and everything that I've been preaching, everything that I've been teaching about the Messiah, my life's work is now becoming a reality. And John is excited. He's celebrating. He's saying the king is here. And not only am I going to celebrate it hearing Jesus' voice, but I'm telling you, my joy is full. It's complete. And there are so many things today that tempt to rob us of our joy. Every election, we're flooded with opinions on what the most important issues are and what we should focus on. And this year was no different. And as important as all of these issues are, and hear me, they are important. None of them, none of the issues out there, politically, socially, economically, none of them have the power to destroy the church. But jealousy, strife, the inability to, to overcome envy and rejoice at someone else's blessing and success will choke the life out of every relationship especially in the church. I recently reread a great article by Tim Challies about the relationship between joy and envy. 
John Gilgold was one of the most successful actors of the 20th century. His career spanned eight decades, and he had the rare distinction of winning an Oscar, an Emmy, a Grammy, and a Tony Award. And he was especially famous and known for his works, roles in the works of Shakespeare. And in his autobiography, he recounts his friendship, friendship and secret rivalry with, with other actors, most notably uh, Laurence Olivier. And this is what he said uh, about that relationship. He said, when Sir Laurence Olivier played Hamlet in 1948 and the critics raved, I wept. We look at John Gilgold's success in awards and we think, how is that possible? Look at everything he has. And sometimes, if we're honest, we'll fall into the same trap. We get our sense of value, approval, or purpose from the things that we have or the things that we do. We are vulnerable. If our identity is in anything other than the gospel, we're building our lives on a shaky foundation. This is what Tim Chalice says. Quote, the opposite of envy is rejoicing, especially in the success of the people who are closest to us, who received accolades we would like for ourselves, who took home awards we believe we deserved, who garnered praise for accomplishments much like our own. And, and maybe, maybe you're here today, and you see this happening in your own life, and you're struggling. And instead of joy, you have resentment towards some of, someone for their success, Listen, if that's you, I don't have condemnation, but I do have good news. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. And for the believer in Jesus, the most important truth about your identity comes from who you are in Christ. You are deeply loved. You are a son or a daughter of the Most High God, and that... That is an unshakable truth. John the Baptist was secure because his ultimate joy was in Jesus. John the Baptist could rejoice because he understood that his station in the kingdom was ordained by God. And his greatest joy was to fulfill his mission and to prepare the way for Jesus. People will sometimes talk to us and ask us, how do I get into ministry? How do I get into ministry? And our response is always the same. Everyone who is a Christian is in ministry. In, in fact, we, we believe that you can have a, a much bigger impact for the kingdom of God out there than we can in here. So I want to encourage you that God has you right now where you are for a purpose. And right now, where you are is your opportunity ministry, you have the opportunity to bring the kingdom of God into every conversation, into every project at work, into every sales or service call that you make. And as you blossom where and thrive where you're planted, doing it full of joy, you make Jesus look great. So far, John the Baptist has shown us how to be grateful, how to be joyful, and last, he now shows us how to be humble. We come finally to the end of John the Baptist's ministry the following words, he officially closes out the era of anticipation, ushering in the age of fulfillment. John the Baptist is the last in a long line of prophets that prepared the way of the Messiah. The job that John had to do is now complete. 
The last words of John the Baptist in John's gospel is one of the greatest statements in the entire Bible. It's very short but powerful. John 3.30. He must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist is now called on to lay it all down. His ministry, his influence, and his disciples all for the glory of Jesus. Now, let's not read through this too fast. You know, in, in those times, it would be considered a mega, mega ministry. There's no hint of resistance, no, no mention of parlaying his fame into a ministry. He's happy, to be, he's happy to walk away and be forgotten. He's able to let go. Name recognition is one of the most important factors in success in uh, the business world today. And we all can feel it. One of the most powerful temptations today is the desire to be famous. There's something about getting your uh, tweet retweeted or, or picking up a new follower on Facebook that makes us feel good. And in recent years in the marketing and communications industry, one of the things that has exploded is the idea of building your personal brand. Um, some experts define the personal brand this way. Your brand is a perception or emotion that describes the total experience of having a relationship with you. Social media influencers, famous athletes and actors are some of the most effective people at building and maintaining their personal brands. One actor in recent years to go from unknown to superstar status overnight was Chadwick Boseman. He went from playing bit parts on TV soap opera to leading screen roles where he portrayed American, African-American icons like James Brown, Jackie Robinson, and Thurgood Marshall. But of course, Bozeman is best known as a superhero Black Panther in the Marvel movies of recent years. The world was shocked when Bozeman passed away on August 28th from colon cancer at the age of 43. One of the reasons for the shock was that almost no one knew about his battle with cancer. Bozeman was diagnosed with stage 3 colon cancer in 2016, which eventually progressed to stage 4 before 2020. He never spoke publicly about his ca cancer diagnosis. And some reports said that only a handful of non-family members knew that Bozeman was sick at all. During treatment involving multiple surgeries and chemotherapy, he continued to work and produced uh, several films during that time. Two years ago, Chadwick Boseman paid an unforgettable visit to the children and families at St. Jude's uh, Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. And, and this is what the administrator said, quote, when Chadwick came to St. Jude's in 2018, we knew he didn't have a lot of time to spend with us. He had just finished filming Avengers Endgame in Atlanta and made a special stop in Memphis on his way back to Los Angeles. That day, when his time with us was drawing to a close and the line of St. Jude patients was still long, Chadwick insisted on staying until he had the chance to greet every single patient. For the kids who couldn't attend the group art party due to their illness, Chadwick visited the rooms and even helped one of our young patients celebrate her birthday in her hospital bed. And here's what blows me away. Bozeman could easily have used his sickness to leverage sympathy and draw even more attention to himself. Instead, he kept working. He kept giving back. He made sure others got the attention. 
One of the best definitions of humility I've read is from Tim Keller in his little bitty book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Keller explains that humility is not thinking of yourself, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And he says that true humility means that we stop connecting every experience, every conversation with ourselves. And that in that self-forgetfulness, we will experience true freedom. He must increase, but I must decrease. In verse 30, John the Baptist isn't interested in gaining more followers. He's not trying to build his personal brand. His mission in life is focused solely on making more followers of Jesus. For John, Jesus is the blazing center of his life. Jesus is his supreme treasure. John the Baptist displays the humility of self-forgiveness, and as he does that, he shows us how to exit the stage and in the process make Jesus great. For many years, the accomplishments of the hidden figures women lay dormant, almost lost to history. But in 2015, at the age of 97, Katherine Johnson was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, America's highest civil honor. In her later years, Katherine Johnson was in high demand for interviews and meetings. And when discussing her career, she was always quick to deflect attention. She was always quick to remember the women that came before her and her teammates. Her former pastor, uh, Reverend Dr. Brian Blount, called Johnson, quote, a true space heroine, but one of the people you rarely hear about. He spoke of her humility, saying he'd been the pastor at her church for three years before he ever heard of her early work at NASA. Katherine Johnson and the other hidden figures women of NASA fulfilled their mission with gratitude, with joy, and with humility. And they were all remembered for, pass, for passing on the baton for the next generation to the next generation of engineers and scientists. And in the same way, John the Baptist has passed the baton of witnessing to Jesus to us. And I think I can safely say that John the Baptist would not want us to conclude this message talking about his life and ministry. No. John the Baptist's final lesson to us is to look away from ourselves and to fix our eyes on Jesus. Pastor Tim read it earlier. I'm going to read it again, Philippians 2. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. John the Baptist declared that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The most important question is, do you believe this? Let me make it more personal. Do you believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away your sin? John the Baptist became less so Jesus could become more. 
And Jesus, in turn, became nothing so we could have everything. On the cross, Jesus was forsaken so we could belong. On the cross, Jesus was condemned so we could be set free. On the cross, Jesus was crushed so we could have life. And this, this is the message our world so desperately needs to hear at this hour. And at the beginning of the message, I said that revival will never happen out there until it first happens in here. Jesus is calling you to make Him great again. Will you answer the call?